to Rock Science. Today, I'm joined with Lydia Pine, the author of Seven Skeletons, The Evolution of the World's Most Famous Human Fossils. Welcome to the show, Lydia. Thanks, it's great to be here. I really enjoyed your book, and I think to start off, I think the best, uh, or a question that I thought of asking was, what, what is a fossil, exactly? That's actually a really good question to kick things off with. So, a fossil is the... Uh, remains of an organism that lived millions of years ago. Paleontologists study fossils, uh, both animal and plant fossils, and they can be used to reconstruct past ecosystems. They can be used for paleoecology, and they are they are the remains, as I said, of organisms that lived millions of years ago. Nice. Yeah, I think people always know about the dinosaurs and those sort of things, but uh, anything. Exactly. Almost anything can become a fossil. Um, anything that has been organic can become a fossil. And the seven that you look at here is, uh, are these human fossils. Um, and you say that fossils are the sum of their stories. Uh, can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. So, um, so I definitely sort of ended up focusing the book more on the, on the human evolution aspect rather than starting with all fossils, all famous fossils. Um, I think if I had done that, I would have included things like Sue the T-Rex or something like that. Um, but the book does focus, as you point out, on, the, on seven famous human ancestors. Um, and I was interested in exploring this because I felt like that these fossils, because they are part of the human evolutionary story, um, offer really interesting insights into how we think about understanding our own evolution. Um, and that, yeah, I feel like that they are really the sum of their stories, that they're not just their caliper measurements or their CT analyses or their, their scientific studies. They're also their museum exhibits. They're also the media that, uh, that, that surrounds them. They're all of these things. Um, there are a lot of times uh, the characters that people know or recognize or latch on to um, in sort of thinking about human evolution. So people are familiar with Lucy. They know Lucy. They might, maybe they don't know, you know, exactly when she lived or what her paleo environment was, but they, they've heard of Lucy. And having those kind of characters, I think, really become ways for fossils to serve as ambassadors for science. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I mean, from the seven fossils that you, uh, seven skeletons <laughs> that you talk about in your book, I really only recognize Lucy. But after reading it, I, you know, they all have really interesting stories that I didn't know. Um, One of the things that's been really interesting, even in the couple of weeks since um, the book's publication, is that three of the seven have been in the news with major new papers. And I felt like that that was really interesting, that it sort of reinforced this, this idea that they're known because they're known. And, and it was really amazing to see the continued interest, even for some of these that have been studied for decades, there's still this scientific and cultural interest in them. Absolutely. I, I saw that photo on Twitter of Lucy falling out of a tree. <laughs> <laughs> and you felt like, wait a minute, I know now why this is significant. That's awesome. <laughs> When you say the papers came out recently, do you read the current scientific literature on on uh, human anthropology? I do, actually. Um, so my background is in anthropology and archaeology, um, but also in history and philosophy of science. That's what my PhD is in. Um, I have worked on archaeological excavations. Um, I've worked on paleoanthro projects. Um, and so I'm always interested in sort of keeping current with that, sort of keeping that, that dual interest. 
Cool. What exactly was your experience with fossils before you did this book? Because it seems like you got to visit a lot of these afterwards, so you must be super experienced now, like seeing these remains. Sure. So before, um, I started out in grad school, actually, as a student in anthropology and paleoanthropology. Um, I finished a master's in anthropology um, at the University of Texas at Austin, um, and then opted to do my PhD at Arizona State University. Um, and there, I actually switched PhD programs from archaeology to history and philosophy of science. I felt like I could never quite pick which camp it, which camp it sits in. Um, and I felt that history and philosophy of science would let me work on projects similar to this, where you sort of look at the cultural and the social doing of science that underlies um, this kind of scientific discovery and these kind of discussions. Um, and so, so with that, I feel like, though, in order to write about the history of science and to, to be able to discuss how decisions, how scientists make decisions or how different studies become important or significant, I feel like it's important to be able to read current literature, to be able to read past scientific literature, and then to be able to sort of balance that out against sort of the demands of narrative history or something like that. During your master's, does that mean you actually you work with human fossil or human remains in specific, or different types? Uh, no, actually, with my with my master's uh, project, I was actually looking at geoecology. Um, but I have worked so 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 very not fossil uh, specific related. But um, with uh, with other projects that I've done, I have uh, I have worked on excavations. Um, I have worked with museum specimens. Uh, for example, when I was doing the research for this book specifically, I had the opportunity to uh, spend some time at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, and with that, I was working both in the archives of the, of the Tong child discoverer, Raymond Dart. Um, the university kept his papers from the 1920s through the 1980s, actually. So I would spend time working with the, with the scientists' papers, the, the papers themselves, but also spend time with the fossils it, themselves and to be able to see the Tong child itself. So it's sort of, again, that dual, sort of looking at a lot of different texts, having the fossils as texts, having the um, correspondence as texts, to be able to sort of find a variety of ways to see how the lives of these fossils can be told and come together. You do mention in the book that idea sort of the many ways of knowing the fossil, right? You can, yeah. What, what do you feel like when you first sat down in the collections room or whatever, and they're like, oh, we're going to bring you this <laughs> ancient skeleton? What, was it nervous? Like, do you have to wear gloves? What's, can you describe a little bit about that experience? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I'll be honest. Um, I was pretty nervous. It was sort of, you're sort of like, wow, I'm holding the Mona Lisa of, you know, fossils. And I sure don't want to be the one that, that drops it or that does something. I mean, it's just all of these horrible things that go through your mind. Um, and especially because uh, for the work that I was doing, I didn't need to do any particular CT analysis or any kind of caliper analysis or anything like that. Um, and so, and so it, definitely, it definitely sort of felt like, wait a minute, I, I want to be careful. I want to be, you know, respectful, but at the same time, wow, I sure don't want to be the person that, that drops it because I, I, I just don't need that in my career. Um, but what was interesting is the first time that I saw the Tong child actually was when I was an undergraduate. 
um, I had attended a field school um, in South Africa. It was a summer field school where undergraduates learn excavation, they learn human paleo, paleoanthropology, all of those sorts of things. And part of the uh, the curriculum was to spend a couple of days at the University of the Wittwatersrand in Johannesburg, and uh, we would see sort of anatomical demonstrations or fossil demos um, that were done by very prominent paleoanthropologists and scientists at the university. So during one of these fossil demos, um, a very eminent scientist, Dr. Philip Tobias, um, would had brought out all of these famous fossils uh, from South Africa, many that I don't even talk about in the book. But he would he would show these fossils, um, and as undergraduates, we knew that we were really excited to see the Tong child. That this was sort of it. That this was this was the real thing. We had we had all seen these casts, but we hadn't seen the real thing. Um, and so we're all really eagerly waiting in anticipation for for Tobias, Professor Tobias, to show us this Tong child. And he brings it out of the box, and, and he sort of puts it together. And the, the fossil remains are a mandible, so the jawbone, um, part of the face, and then actually um, a fossilized brain, an endocast uh, from, the, from, the, yeah, from the, the fossil. And so he sort of holds these three parts together, and he's showing it off, and we're all just entranced. Um, and then he sort of has the, the little mandibles start moving up and down, and he tells us some jokes. And, and I, it was just like, what is this? This is, I, you know, how can something as famous as the Tong child and, you know, someone, a scientist as famous as Professor Tobias, how can this even be happening? What are we, what are we looking at? Um, and as undergrads, we were just sort of shocked. I mean, how, how do I even understand what I'm seeing? Um, but what was really funny about that story is that if you were to ask anybody who had worked with Professor Tobias or had seen his fossil demo, they would tell you exactly the same story. And so it struck me that sort of telling this, this story of, you know, having the, the Tong child do his little vaudeville act um, was just as much part of the fossil's cultural history as as any kind of um, uh, morphometric analysis or any kind of phylogenetic analysis. And I really wanted to find those sort of plural ways that these fossils live. Cool. Um, I definitely, I, I watched like a PBS documentary or something about, you know, the, the origins of human beings. And it seems like these days uh, DNA evidence is playing a, a large role in, in ancient human evolution. Um, and I just wondered whether or not, you know, you talk about, I think it's uh, maybe in the Piltdown, anyways, there's, there's a story and they talk about chemical analysis and it's a destructive method, you know, you have to go and destroy the skeleton to get it. And I, from what I understand, genomic analysis is also a destructive method. That's absolutely true. Um, for most of the fossils that I talk about um, in the book, they're much too old for any kind of DNA analysis. And so um, that's, I think that that's one of the main reasons why I kind of sidestep the, the question in Seven Skeletons is it's not specifically relevant. Um, and for example, the old man of La Chapelle, the Neanderthal, um, a lot of the Neanderthal genetic analyses have focused on other specimens. So that's why I didn't, uh, didn't bring that up there. But you're right that um, certainly when Piltdown Man, the hoax, was sampled to sort of determine whether, you know, its authenticity, um, certainly there were huge questions. And that's one of the reasons it took several years 
uh, for the museum to agree to the test is because they are destructive. So when you look at the, the pieces of the Piltdown hoax, uh, you can see little tiny holes where, where the samples have been taken. And it struck me that, again, that this is it's almost like a cultural taphonomy. And so you can see the, the stories of having had to be sampled. You can see the marks that these, these episodes leave on the, the bones themselves, um, hoax or not hoax. In your experience, are there any um, skeletons that have sort of been consumed entirely by a destructive process? Like, are there any techniques that require that much bone? I don't think so. Um, and even the small parts that are being, um, that you can see that were sampled in the 1950s, um, much less uh, sample would be required now. So I think that the methods are being refined, uh, less is required, um, even having, even though the analyses are fundamentally destructive, um, they're becoming more and more refined. And so that's something that's interesting to sort of see unfold over the last several decades um, in human paleoanthropology. So why do um, fossils become famous? And how did you choose the seven, the seven that are described in this book? That's an awesome question, actually. Um, and it was really hard, I felt like, to pick seven. Um, there, were, there were several iterations and drafts of outlines and stuff where I had other fossils that had been included. Um, and so when I, when I was sort of paring them down and sort of, okay, which seven do I want to talk about? I tried to look for fossils that I felt had become famous for different reasons, that they weren't famous for the same reasons, that they exhibited different types of narrative arcs, or that they um, experienced different, um, different cultural factors that really propelled them toward their story. Uh, so for example, Piltdown is famous because of his hoaxy status, and you know, Peking Man is famous because the fossils are lost, and Lucy is famous because she's this icon. And so I tried to find different types of celebrity, different types of fame and reasons for fame for different scientific discoveries. Because it's, I really think that it's not, just, um, it's not just the scientific importance that's assigned to a fossil, because a lot of fossils have scientific importance. And a lot of fossils are studied to be able to sort of work out human evolution. But I felt that these seven um, or sort of had the, the cultural cachet associated with them to be able to, to make them celebrities. Um, and so to get back to your question of sort of, well, what, what does make something a celebrity? Um, I think that there are a couple of things that really seem to be, to be common um, on a very broad scale. Um, one is that I think that the fossil uh, answers a question that's really interesting to the scientific community at the point that it's discovered. So it's sort of immediately relevant. Um, second of all, I think that it has, um, it has a good media presence, um, that the public can, can really latch onto this fossil and to be entranced by it. Um, and we certainly see that even in the early 20th century with the old man of La Chapelle. So when, um, when it was published, uh, it got a lot of press um, in the French media. Um, and Piltdown, when Piltdown was published as, um, as a fossil in 2012, or excuse me, in 1912, um, the, uh, the British media was, you know, surrounding the museum. I mean, it was packed to the gills when they're making this kind of announcement. And so I think that having that kind of media presence is really going to, to also serve to help sort of cement a fossil celebrity. It was interesting to read the stories because 
you know, basically you, you do delve into a lot of those mechanisms for each um, skeleton in the book. And it's interesting to see that po popularity and like the kind of media thing that surrounds um, that surrounds science has always been there, right? There's always been a, a popularity circuit that has to run. And I think that that's really interesting because in some ways it sort of, I think, begins to ask this question of, well, is it necessary? Is it good? Is it harmful? Is it, you know, what, what are the outcomes of that? Do we, you know, with all of the hype about Piltdown, we end up overlooking the Tong child for decades. And so it sort of, I think, points out that there's, there's a cost to that celebrity, but definitely I think that these, these sort of mechanisms, as you say, are, are necessary if it's going to be a celebrity or a famous fossil. I see. And do you think ultimately it drives the science forward as well? Like, can the celebrity fuel good science? I think that we're definitely seeing parts of that with um, Sediba. So the most recently discovered fossils, it was discovered in uh, 2008, um, published in 2010. It's a fossil from South Africa. Um, it's from the same area, actually, as the Tong child, so the same sort of ge geologic formations and stuff like that. Um, and Sediba was actually featured three times on the cover of Science Magazine um, in five years, which has never happened in any kind of um, in any kind of cover for Science. I actually downloaded and looked at all of the covers of Science um, since it's been published, um, and there are a lot of covers of Science. Actually, they reach back to the 1800s here, so there are a lot of covers. And there are actually only nine covers in the entire history of science that feature fossil hominids. Um, and of those nine, three are Sediba. And I found that to be amazing, sort of like what is it about sort of being able to leverage a scientific discovery and sort of being able to, to sort of create a sense that this is important. And I felt like that certainly Sediba had been able to sort of leverage that kind of celebrity status to really propel further research into um, human origins in South Africa. And I think that Sediba's celebrity and Sediba's success really helped to create a niche for um, the excavations that have been happening over the last two years and the discovery of Homo naledi. And so in large part, I think that, that the stage was set with Sediba for naledi's success. Yeah, I, I, I remember a comment in your book, which I enjoyed. It was like a meticulously updated Wikipedia page may have contributed to the success. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but on, on the other side, like you have the, the Piltdown hoax, right? Where right. it's kind of like the celebrity drove um, dead-end scientific research in a way. Right. It's sort of it's acting like this double-edged sword. And I think that that's why a lot of scientists can be very hesitant to sort of pursue the celebrity or the fame, that there's a cost that comes with that. There's almost an accountability that comes with that. But it's, um, it's interesting to see the different ways that it plays out. In my social circles, people um, are very enthusiastic about you know, embracing um, scientific media, right? Like we wanna see it come through all the different channels and we want people to be excited about science because we're excited about science. But what do you think is a good I mean, like, so we're also consumers in some ways of popular science outside of our fields. 
So what do you think is a good thing to think about as as one of those consumers? So we are, you know, like, do we have to be skeptical? Do you have to be internally skeptical of scientific news in order to make sure that we don't blow up um, sort of hoax-like things and and we instead encourage like more rigorous investigations as a public? That's a really awesome question. And I think that it's one of those like really cool questions that's, that's definitely the heart of a lot of history of science kinds of studies or sort of sociology of science kinds of studies. And one of the things that I think is interesting to see um, sort of in changes um, with scientific communication and networks of knowledge that have changed from La Chapelle and Piltdown to, say, Sediba, is, is sort of the, the ability for scientists and others, you know, whether or not they're experts in the, that specific scientific field, um, to be able to participate in the conversations of science. So when Lucy's uh, new paper was published last week in Nature about her falling from a tree, all of a the sudden, there's, there's all of this conversation that you can see happening immediately, that there's not the sort of lag and the delay and sort of the, the correspondence that has to go back and forth from, say, DART in Johannesburg to the intellectual community in London. And so you are able, I think that one of the things that's changing and sort of the ways that people are participating in the scientific process more is being able to participate immediately. And what, you know, sort of what the side effects of that immediate participation are, um, you know, it's something that, that, will be, that we'll see unfold. But I think that having that kind of immediacy is changing the dynamic quite a bit. Yeah, uh, that's, that's really exciting <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it lets, it lets people sort of be excited, I think, about science, whether or not they would consider themselves quote-unquote scientists. This is maybe a segue into our multiple choice questions, but where do you, where do you get the research, all of your sort of pop culture themes in the book? Because like you're able to weave together some really interesting lines of story, like from the museum collection and then where it's been mentioned on like the television series Bones. Yeah. And like, <laughs> and how, how do you bring all this material together? What's the process? Um. So I had to laugh because the first thing that popped into my head, um, my husband told me once it was like being married to Wikipedia. Um, and so, you know, I took that as a compliment at that point. Uh, but on a, on a more serious note, um, I, think that, I think that one of the things that I really want to do with these, um, with these kind of stories and looking for ways that these tropes pop up, whether it's early 20th century science fiction or if it's, you know, Lord of the Rings um, for the Hobbit fossil. It's really trying to look at ways that um, that these fossils have permeated culture, whether it's through history, through literature, through a variety of things. And so a lot of times um, if I hear somebody say, oh, did you hear about blah, 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 or um, if there's something that I see um, that I come across, sort of like, oh, a reference to Piltdown Man and Bones or something like that, I'll jot it down and just put it in my sort of stack of stuff for that particular fossil. And so by the time I'm ready to go back through and write that chapter, I can see all of these little index cards full of factoids. And so some factoids make it in, and some are just sort of distracting and superfluous. 
Um, and so you try and sort of pick things that you feel like exemplify the theme, but maybe not include absolutely everything. Although it can be really hard to to sort of say, oh, but I want to include that. And then you say, no, that's that's better suited for a blog post or for a tweet or something like that. So. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically like you're you're always on the lookout for facts. You were at least always on the lookout for facts about these skeletons. Exactly, exactly. No, exactly. Or pictures or, um, or media about them. For example, I was really excited when I, um, when I found um, a company that uh, sells T-shirts with Lucy on them that say, you know, I love Lucy. I mean, at that point, it was like, oh, this is great. So I, I saved the catalog from the company um, as part of the, the research that I was pulling together. So as you say, it's definitely sort of always being on the lookout and just always sort of filing it away and saying, I can throw stuff out later, but I can't collect it later. So are we to expect some other skeleton books sort of coming from you? <laughs> Seven more skeletons. Um, yeah, I, or just a different take on maybe a different skeleton, something like that. Yeah, I'm just yeah. curious. <laughs> um, I'm not sure, actually. Um, I would love to, there are definitely, as you say, so many other themes that would be really interesting to explore, um, things that I definitely didn't look at at all um, in Seven Skeletons. And so I would love to do another kind of history of paleoanthro book um, at some point in the future. But I think that it would be, um, I think it would be removed from these Seven Skeletons specifically. Gotcha. All right. Well, this is the part of the show that we call the Grokatron 5000. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And what that consists of is a couple multiple choice questions, and should you get three of them correct, a lucky listener of our radio show will okay. get a copy of your book, which is a great read. <laughs> um, I so am. So you ready to play, Lydia? <laughs> great. Um, and there's sort of a theme that's going to emerge that's sort of related to okay. your book from the questions. <laughs> the first one is, what trilogy of movies culminates in the addition of the Neanderthal character named La, who looks like the lead character, played by Ben Stiller. Is it The Lord of the Rings, Zoolander, Night at the Museum, or Meet the Parents? That's an awesome question. Um, I'm going to have to go with Night at the Museum. Night at the Museum. Oh, excellent. Correct. <laughs> yep, that's where the sort of museum creatures right. come to life right, at the right. end. <laughs> so I guess... If we were uh, to think about the seven skeletons, that would be the little yeah, Lucy's. I love that. And, uh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, okay, second question. In 1968, a chewable multivitamin product was introduced by Miles Laboratories to North America, one of the most uh, popular items from this uh, franchise. What popular family franchise did they resemble? Was it the Osbournes? The Clan of the Cave Bear, the Adams Family, or the Flintstones? Oh my gosh, I think I'm going to have to go with the Flintstones. <laughs> the Flintstones, <laughs> you're correct. <laughs> do, you, do you remember those items? I don't know. Like, uh, I do, actually. They survived well into the 80s, and so I do remember the, the Flintstones <laughs> vitamins. <laughs> Great. Uh, and the next question, if you get this one right, we can give away your book. Um, what famous ancient human is the focus of the failed 2007 ABC sitcom entitled Caveman? Was it King Tut, the Geico mascot, Utsi the Iceman, or Lennon's mummy? 
Oh, man. Um, I'm going to go with the Iceman. Uh, Utsi the Iceman. Yes. Actually, that's incorrect. It was the Geico mascot. Oh, it was the Geico mascot. Yeah. What a great factoid to be able to file away here. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, we have another question for you. Uh, in the NBC television series from 1974, was re remade in 1991, and also produced a spin-off um, movie series uh, starring Will Ferrell in 2009. Uh, what, what was the title of this? Was it Land of the Lost, Jurassic Park, Quest for Fire, or Far Cry Primal? Wow. Wow. Um, NBC television series from 1974, and then it was remade and there's a movie. Uh-huh. Land of the Lost, Jurassic Park, Quest for Fire, or Far Cry Primal? I'm going to go with the first one. Land of the Lost. You're correct. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You... These are awesome questions, by the way. I am just, like, blown away. I, this is awesome. <laughs> well, I'm glad you enjoyed them. Uh, you got three of them right, so we're definitely going to give away your book. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us on Grok Science. And before you leave, could you maybe just leave us with, uh, what do you think people should, what do you hope people get from Seven Skeletons? Sure. One of the things that I would love for people to take away from Seven Skeletons is the, is the idea that science is a social process. And that whether you're participating in science as a scientist or as someone who enjoys going to museums or someone who is just sort of curious about the world, I think that I think that the idea that these skeletons are the results of decisions that we we make culturally over and over again um, would definitely be the thing that I would I would hope that people take away from it. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us, Lydia. Well, thanks for having me. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.